I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series on Ephesians so far. I feel like I'm really getting to know the Ephesians. Um, I wonder whether the reason is Tim's photos um, from uh, Ephesus, from his visit earlier this summer. Being able to see the streets and the buildings, even though they're now in ruins, has made me realize how alike to us the Ephesians really were. Their culture and their society was quite different from us. But as Tim has made it quite clear, um, not as much as we would expect. And seeing all those crosses engraved into walls and lintels, it's not surprising that in Acts we read um, about the craftsmen who made idols in the city being in an uproar because of the numbers of people becoming Christians. Because it was causing them enormous loss of business. And when I see those photos, I really do appreciate you sharing them with us, Tim. When I see those photos of crosses on those ancient buildings, I wonder, did the person who engraved that cross first see Paul's words, not in an ancient book like we do, but as fresh ink on an unrolled scroll in the hands of a breathless messenger? Did they sit at the feet of someone reading them out to a group gathered in that very house? Were they encouraged to hear that they'd been chosen in Christ, that they had eternal life and that sin had no grip on them? Did they thrill to hear that Paul was praying for them, for the power of God, the very power of God, that they would know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of his love for them? When Paul moved on to give his advice on how to live in Christ, as we heard from Miles last week, did this come as a helpful reminder? Or did it strike close to home? Was there a pickpocket who was told that his lucrative career had to cease? Was it the couple who lived in that house with that cross who needed to be reminded to make up their differences before they went to bed? And now we've come to chapter five. What's waiting for us here? Well, if you've looked online or read your email, you will know the title already is Wisdom in Christ. But I think it's a good idea to start with a question, not the answer. What were the Ephesian believers straining to hear as they listened to Paul's precious letter for the first time, or the second time, or all the times that they heard it read out to them? In little groups gathered in homes around the city, this letter was part of their scripture, just as it is part of ours. I think the question that might have been in their minds was, how, what, how does all this wonderful knowledge make a difference to how I walk day by day? And how do I walk when everything that I used to do has been turned upside down by this new way of doing things, of living? So let's start there. The word walk is central to chapter five of Ephesians. Where it says live in most of our modern English translations, Paul actually said walk. 
Walk with love. Walk wisely. Doing everything with thanksgiving and worship in your hearts. Now, in chapter 4, Paul was giving very specific instructions. But in chapter 5, he moves on to some more general principles. These can be applied more widely. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking it's very like a physics textbook. You know my mind always goes to physics. In a physics textbook, first of all, there are observations of the rules of nature. Apples fall to the ground. Things travel in a straight line unless something is pushing or pulling them. These are a bit like Paul's rules. Stealing and being angry are bad. But to understand why apples fall down, not up, or why it's bad to steal or be angry, we need to understand <clears throat> the underlying principles. There's something called gravity. There's something called love. Once we get the hang of the principles, the rules fall into place. And bear with me if you think I'm pushing the analogy too far here. I will shut up about physics soon. The next thing that comes in our trusty textbook is some worked examples. If I let this ball roll down a ramp, how long will it take to get to the bottom? One of my favorites. And Paul does exactly the same. If I'm married or if I'm a slave, how does this love principle apply? And that's what he moves on to do at the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6. These are worked examples showing love put into action. But actually, if you heard me at the end of September talking about submission and service, you will know that I referred to this passage then. So I hope you're not disappointed, but I'm not going to be talking about husbands and wives today. That was actually the passage when Andrew and I got married. Um, it caused some consternation in some members of our family who weren't believers because they thought it was very weird. Um, if you really want to know what I think about that, you can listen to my other sermon, which I think is online. But I've pushed my analogy about as far as I can. It's going to break down because the final thing in our imaginary physics textbook is a set of problems for the eager student which is probably just me, to go away and work out for themselves. But Paul doesn't set us any problems to solve. He leaves us with the worked examples and moves on to the next set of principles, which are coming up in chapter 6. And they're really, really good. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to hearing from Tim next week. But actually, there are problems, aren't there? They're in our lives rather than being in the letter to the Ephesians. Every day we face moral problems. We have decisions to make. We have dilemmas to solve. And the Bible gives us some rules. And it gives us the principles behind the rules, which helps us to know when the rules can and even should be broken. And it gives us lots and lots of worked examples. The Bible is full of worked examples. It's what all the stories in the Bible are, 
stories about real people facing real life situations. And unlike the textbook where the answers in the back are normally right, although there is occasionally a, a misprint, sometimes the examples in the Bible get things wrong, sometimes terribly wrong, which is helpful for us because it means we don't have to make all the mistakes. We can learn from them. Now, that was a bit of a whistle-stop overview of what I think chapter 5 is about. Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. What are the principles that Paul tells the Ephesians about in chapter 5? Imagine you're sitting squashed up in somebody's house in ancient Ephesus. You've heard some wonderful things about who you are in Christ that have blown your mind just a bit. You're going to have to ask Aquila to read that bit again later. And now you've heard lots of rules. How am I going to remember them all, you ask yourself? It's a bit like physics. <laughs> One of the reasons I loved physics was that you didn't have to know the rules. You just had to know the principles. It meant there was a lot less learning than in chemistry. Paul says, yes, it's complicated, but basically it can all be summed up as walk with love. Copy Christ. I always think of this as Paul's what would Jesus do moment. Um, if he'd had any WWJD bracelets, he would have sent them along with his letter to be handed out at this point. Just as Christ walked in love, sacrificing himself for us, so we should walk in love. And all the rules can be summed up by this. And in case you're not quite sure why, Paul illustrates why it comes down to love with three little illustrations which he felt were particularly relevant to the people in Ephesus. I'm going to leave it to you to decide whether you think they're relevant for us today. He sketches over them very quickly, and I'm going to flesh it out a little bit more, based on things he says in other places in his letters, and on things that Jesus says. Sexual immorality, he says, is not compatible with loving people. And I would suggest that it's because it's actually about gratifying our own desires at the expense of other people's well-being. There's always someone who suffers when sex is outside a permanent, committed, loving relationship. Because only in a permanent, committed, loving relationship, aka marriage, is love truly unconditional? Because we have promised before God and before other people to love our partner, come what may. Paul's next illustration is impurity, and this comes in different bits throughout the chapter. This is the sort of impurity that Jesus describes as coming out of a man's heart, coming out of a woman's heart, that makes us unclean. Do you remember the bit where he says to the Pharisees, no amount of ceremonial washing can clean you of these things. 
And no amount of going to church can either. Washing and going to church cannot make love and hatred fit into the same heart. The same mouth that says rude, hurtful, coarse, mocking things can't truly worship God. Paul's final illustration is greed. And this is not about wanting to eat a lot. This, pure and simple, is about putting anything before God. Money, possessions, sex, alcohol, name your addiction, fill in the blanks. Greed, says Paul, is fundamentally, fundamentally idolatry. That's why later on Paul says, don't get drunk. If alcohol is covering up your fears and anxieties, if alcohol is giving you security, it's your God. But actually, not a very effective God because it leaves you with all the same fears, anxieties, and insecurities in the morning. And also a hangover. But Jesus removes fears and anxieties completely because we are permanently secure in his love. Jesus does not give you a hangover. You once did all this stuff, said Paul, but you don't anymore. You're different because you know about Christ and his love. You are children of light. God is light. Brilliant. Fantastic. And he says to them, don't let anyone tell you that it's okay to sin and do these things and still be a Christian. If anyone tells them that, he says, you call them out on it. You are God's light in the world, so you can now act as light. And the fruit of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. These are great words, aren't they? <laughs> but they can be a bit abstract, don't you think? What do they actually mean in practice? Now, this is a whole other sermon, so I'm just going to say what I think it is briefly. I think putting them all together, and it's not a direct equivalent, but putting all three of them together, I think it means being good inside, being good outside, and being good in what we say. Or another way of saying it could be being pure in thought, word, action, and witness. And now we come to the bit in verse 14 where Paul says, walk wisely. It's the heart of the chapter. It's the heart of what I'm talking about tonight. It's so important that Paul says it twice, but he says it differently the second time. He says it the other way around. He says, don't walk foolishly. It's like he's saying, God gave us brains, use them. It's not rocket science. If you love your neighbor, you don't nick their stuff. You don't sleep with their boyfriend. You don't lie. And maybe you better not get a job that pays you to lie either. You can work it out. If you want working used car sales, that's totally fine. 
Just make sure you sell cars that work, not cars that don't. Maybe, given the current climate, and given the current climate crisis, you could think about selling electric bikes instead. This is following in the great tradition of Old Testament literature, wisdom, wisdom literature. There's a natural law of behaving well, which is understood by all people if they're actually being honest with themselves. Paul's just explained that the rules are fundamentally all about love. Now he's saying use your everyday wisdom and your God-given wisdom to work out what love looks like in each situation you face. But Paul doesn't actually leave the topic of wisdom there. The following sentences expand on his theme. You can't really see it very well because they're made into such short sentences in English. But it's, there's a continuing theme. How do we get this wisdom? And he goes on to talk about the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. And earlier in the letter, he's talked about how God has given us spiritual wisdom. How wisdom is a gift of God, poured on us with his kindness. And now he tells us how we can be filled with the Spirit so that we can have that spiritual wisdom. Gosh, this is something we make such a mystery of. There are some people who will tell you that you are only filled with the Spirit if somebody special lays hands on you, or if you fall down in ecstasy, or if you speak in tongues. All of these things can and do happen. But the truth is, they don't have to. Because you can't worship God if you don't have his spirit in you. So have you been filled with the spirit? Well, do you worship God? Yes, in that case, the answer is yes. But Paul says it's even better than that because as you worship God, the spirit fills you more. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. If you want wisdom, be filled with the Spirit. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, worship God. Thank him for everything. Thank him in everything. This is glorious. This is Paul giving the Ephesians permission to worship God in every way they can think of. This is the justification for contemporary worship and ancient plain song chants. This is the justification for spontaneous praise and songs of praise. This is why our funny little parish is so special, I believe, because we worship God in so many different ways. And the Spirit is here as a result. Use psalms, says Paul, the ancient songbook of the Jews with all the old melodies and the musical instructions we don't understand anymore. Use hymns, says Paul, poetic songs of the sort usually written in those days to praise pagan gods, the way most of the Ephesians were used to singing praises. Paul even quotes one of them in verse 14. Use songs, says Paul. 
and many very clever commentators think this word means the sort of spontaneous songs that the common people came up with at funerals and celebrations. Not great poets. And all of them are covered by this word spiritual. <clears throat> Some translations have psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but that's not the sense of the word. You could say spiritual at the beginning, spiritual psalms, hymns, and songs, but that's still a bit confusing. Best of all is to translate it like this, psalms, hymns, and songs, as inspired by the Spirit. And this isn't a hierarchy. It's an increasing permission to worship. Make heartfelt music, says Paul. No words at all, but passion for God poured into melody. Do you want to know what that looks like? Kim demonstrated it beautifully, and so did Megan on the flute and the keyboard. Kieran played a guitar and sang, worshipping two ways at once. How wonderful, thank you. Thank God, says Paul, at all times and in everything. It reminds me of another letter where he says he's found the secret of being content in sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth. Thank God all the time, whatever your circumstances. You might think that's difficult, it's impossible, it is hard, I'm not saying it's easy. I've spoken before about Corrie ten Boom, so apologies if you've heard this story. Corrie had an older sister called Betsy, who was sent with Corrie to Ravensbrook concentration camp. They were put into a dormitory with hundreds of other women. This hut was riddled with fleas. Betsy was an incorrigible thanksgiving, thanksgiver and insisted on thanking God for everything, including the fleas. Corrie just couldn't bring herself to do that. One day, some time later, she discovered why their hut was free from the regular visits from the guards that all the other huts suffered. Why their hut was a haven of Bible studies and prayer. You've guessed it. It was the fleas. They were so bad that the guards wouldn't risk going inside. And one day, as Corrie and Betsy were stripped naked along with all the other women and forced to walk past the male guards on their way to be sprayed with insecticide, Betsy turned to Corrie, her eyes strangely shining. Our Lord was naked too, she said. However bad our circumstances, there's no pit so deep that our God has not been there before us. This was the truth Betsy lived out in the concentration camp, and this was the faith she still held onto when she died two weeks before Corrie was released. Even, she said, this was the faith that she should share when she got outside of the camp, even with the Nazi collaborators, responsible for sending so many people like themselves 
to the concentration camps. And that is precisely what Corrie did. Corrie's a special case, isn't she? My story is not so heroic. But when I carried my little son into hospital time after time with life-threatening asthma attacks, Graham Kendrick kept me going. When Andrew and I fell out of our church about 14 years ago, our faith in tatters and our hope almost gone. Matt Redmond's Blessed Be Your Name was my song. When Andrew was terribly ill a few years ago and had to have a kidney removed, the Bethel album, You Make Me Brave, literally kept me going. I listened to it all the way into Bristol and all the way back out, going to the hospital. I was in tears all the way there and all the way back. When B was going through the worst of times at the end of 2020 and the first six months of 2021, Lauren Daigle sang on my behalf. And each song was both a thanksgiving and a prayer. This is how we get true wisdom. By not looking at ourselves and our circumstances, but looking at God. And this is also why coming together to worship is so special. Sometimes all I've been able to do is stand in church, tears pouring down my face, unable to sing or say a word. But by being there with others making music and singing psalms, hymns and songs inspired by the Spirit with all their hearts, I have been lifted up into another place where my tears have been seen and counted and wiped away. And I have seen the wisdom of God. Wisdom in Christ. And so here we stand today, following in the footsteps of the Ephesians, thinking about wisdom and where it can be found. And we start to understand why the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Because it is the wisdom of love in all circumstances and worship in all circumstances. But it is the power to overcome all circumstances. If we want to live well, to live as children of light, then we simply need to walk with Jesus. Walk with love. Walk with worship. Walk in wisdom. <laughs>